Hi, I'm Jim Green, Chief Scientist at NASA, and this is Gravity Assist. This season is all about the moon. Welcome to Gravity Assist. This one's going to be very different. You know, we've learned a lot about the moon in this series, but I want to know what your questions are. So I'm here with Liz Landau, and she has been working Twitter and getting questions. So let's get at it. Thanks, Jim. It's been so fun reading all of the questions that you all had. We won't get to all of them, but we did select a lot of them that represent a wide range of topics about exploration and science. So let's dive in. You know, Jim, something I've been curious about is actually something that a bunch of our listeners are curious about. Why is the moon tidally locked? Why do we only see one face of the moon? It's really all about what's inside the moon. You know, when we look at an object, a spherical object, we mentally think it's uniform everywhere, but it turns out it's not. Mass concentrations are all over the place. In fact, if you look at the gravity of the Earth, it's much more pear-shaped than it is actually perfectly spherical from a gravity point of view. And the moon is no different. The moon has mass concentrations, and those are attracted uh, to the Earth, and consequently, that is more powerful than the spinning of the moon itself. And that produces this tidal locking that we see. Are you saying that if the moon were lighter, if it were less massive, perhaps it would not be tidally locked? No, I'm not saying the moon has to be lighter. For the moon not to be tidally locked, it would have to be perfectly spherical in mass. That means everywhere you draw a line from the center of the moon to the crust has exactly the same mass and its distribution. So it's like um, grabbing a piece of clay and creating a round ball and then taking another piece and sticking it on the side. That's an uneven mass distribution. In that that lumpiness is exactly what attracts uh, gravity and therefore the parent body that you're orbiting with a moon that's lumpy is going to be tidally locked. Now, in reality, this is nothing new. When we look out into the solar system, we see many, many, many moons that are tidally locked. In fact, at Jupiter, all the Galilean moons are tidally locked. So that's Io and Europa and Ganymede and Callisto. Very cool. Uh, let's go to another question. At Jim the McCabe asks, I'm super interested in hearing more about the giant impact hypothesis and how planets and their moons can be formed from so many of the same elements around the same time, relatively speaking, in the same relative area of space and yet be so different. Jim, what do you think? Well, the giant impact hypothesis is the leading theory for the creation of the Earth and the Moon. And it really goes like this, that early on in the formation of bodies as they orbit the Sun, in our area of our orbit, the proto-Earth was coming together and several other objects, one, one of which we call Thea. Now, Thea ended up being about a Mars-sized object and of course, uh, as these objects accrete and get bigger and bigger, uh, Thea will be attracted to the proto-Earth because it's so much more massive and an impact occurs. Uh, 
Well, we've done the modeling and we can see the impact is such an enormous collision between a Mars-sized object and the proto-Earth that actually they, they really merge. So whatever material Thea had is merged onto Earth and whatever Earth had uh, is, uh, is being thrown all over the place in and around the area that then uh, reaccretes and creates a new object called the moon. So that's why the moon and the material on the moon is so much like the Earth, because that merger happened early on. Cool. Yeah. And um, the second part of the question is about, you know, how could all these planets be so different if they form from about the same elements? So when you look at the solar system, uh, you see that you have the rocky planets are close to the sun and the more icy bodies are further away from the sun. And what that's all about is really a differentiation of material that is orbiting the sun based on several things. One, heat from the sun actually teases apart volatiles and molecules and breaks them up if you're close to the sun. And so you have to be far away from the sun for the water to exist and for you know, nitrogen and other components of, uh, of the nebula. In the meantime, what's left a lot uh, close to the sun are these rocky materials that then accrete and form planets. Also, you don't see in our solar system big atmospheres like giant planets close to the sun because indeed when the sun became a star and created its solar wind, it blew away a lot of that material. So what we're seeing are the rocky planets close to the sun, which are most affected by the solar wind and the evolution of the early sun. And then further away, where the, where the wind is not as strong because it's dissipating everywhere about as it moves away from the sun, you then see the gas left over from the nebula much more prevalent. And that's why you get these giant bodies. And then, of course, we found this debris field of icy bodies that we now call the Kuiper Belt, you know, the, the furthest remnant of our, of our inner solar system that was created 4.6 billion years ago. Wow, Jim. So it sounds like the distance from the sun when these planets were forming really determined their fate. Yeah, it makes all the difference in the worlds. <laughs> Very cool. So uh, let's take another question from Twitter. Um, at Mundane Mariam asks, is it true that we can only see one side of the moon? If so, is that where you guys landed or was it the other side? Well, because our moon is tidally locked with the Earth, uh, that means by definition, we're only going to see from the Earth one side of the moon. And in our early Apollo program, the first thing indeed is that we want to be able to communicate with anything that's on the surface of the moon. So that dictates that, that we're going to land on that what we call the near side. Now, the far side of the moon is just as fascinating. It has all kinds of different features that we would love to go and interrogate. And we're getting to the point where we will start landing a variety of our missions now to the far side of the moon. Now, what's required is some sort of satellite orbiting the moon such that on the far side we can communicate up to the satellite and then that satellite can communicate back to Earth so that we are in constant contact with anything on the far side of the moon. 
Very cool. Um, let's take a question about exploration. Um, at Rosa Series 2 asks, what is the main reason slash motive for exploring the moon at this time? Oh, the moon is such a wonderful object. What we've learned from our initial landings and, and samples we've brought back from the Apollo program is that the moon's surface has been a witness to 4.6 billion years of solar system evolution and history. And so it's a matter of bringing back the right rocks, things that have impacted the moon. It's, some of the rocks are indigenous to the moon uh, that we want to collect and, and look at and understand the moon itself. Uh, and so consequently, the moon holds a lot of secrets and that's what we want to go after. Awesome. And to follow up at C. Rudnitskis asks, I know we're sending astronauts back to the moon, but what are they going to do there? Live there? Well, indeed, our plan is to uh, have a sustainable presence on the moon. Now, that means we'll have an infrastructure. Uh, you know, there may be a, a, a landing area that we will go to on a repetitive basis. We'll build up a variety of uh, capability there, perhaps some unique habitats that we would, uh, we would go to. Uh, but uh, what they would do there is science. They would uh, collect material. Uh, we want them to go into some of these permanently shadowed craters and create ice cores. You know, we know that there's a lot of volatiles and that includes water that's trapped in these permanently shadowed craters. That gives us a great idea as to the history of the moon. And, and, and we wanna bring these cores back and analyze them in the laboratory. So uh, our next big steps to the moon with humans will be indeed to do science. Awesome. And of course, our ultimate goal at NASA right now is to go to the moon so that we can go to Mars, right? Exactly. In fact, what we're doing by uh, the approach of uh, going to the moon is, is learning to live and work on a planetary surface. And what we, what we will do at the moon is practice a number of things that we will do at Mars. So for instance, the moon, as I mentioned, has an enormous amount of trapped water in these permanently shadowed craters. Well, water is just such a fantastic resource. Uh, water is hydrogen and oxygen. So it's two hydrogens and one oxygen, H2O. And, and water is water, whether it's here on Earth or it's on the moon or it's on Mars. So it's the same thing. What we're gonna do with that water, of course, is we can drink it. We also can break it apart into its components, hydrogen and oxygen. And with that, that enables us to create rocket fuel. In addition to that, of course, we can uh, take the oxygen and breathe it. So water has a great deal uh, uh, to do with being able to sustain constant exploration of the moon. This is exactly the, the same thing we want to do at Mars. We want to go to Mars. We want to go into regions where there's a lot of um, uh, water. We see that there are regions on Mars that has uh, buried frozen water. So that's just exactly what we're seeing on the moon. So as we develop capability to tease apart that water, on the moon, that's some of the same things we'll be doing at Mars. Excellent. I can't wait. Uh, we have a question from at Emperor Aaron. He asks, 
What would be the main difficulties of establishing a human colony on the moon? Well, the moon is a lot different than um, the uh, the Earth and, and even Mars, for that matter, in the sense that it, it has no atmosphere. And so consequently, uh, we're at a disadvantage. You know, we have to work really hard uh, creating environments where uh, humans can, uh, can breathe. So this makes it really difficult for us to do. But, you know, NASA's in the business of doing these things, knows how to do these things. And so we'll be able to overcome these hurdles and be able to create a fantastic set of missions going to the moon, staying for long periods of time, and then returning. That's so fun. Uh, tell us, what is the timeline for that? Well, we are working really hard to put uh, the first woman and the next man on the surface of the moon by 2024. Not only that, we know where they're going. They're going to the South Pole. Now, the South Pole is a very large region. We haven't picked the, the exact location, but indeed, they're going to be close to some of these water resources I talked about. And so right now, we're, we're, we're moving towards identifying the exact location and some of the activities that they'd be doing. So we're really busy. Awesome. Uh, let's take another science question. At Wit Steven asks, is it true that the moon is slowly drifting away from the Earth by two and a half inches a year? Well, indeed, uh, one of the first experiments that the Apollo astronauts put out on the surface of the moon was a, uh, a retro reflector. It's just a, an instrument uh, that uh, allows us to fire a laser beam to the moon, hit that reflector, and have that beam return to the Earth. And when we uh, use that, uh, and we do that every year, we actually then measure the speed of light from here, the Earth, to the moon and back. And then, of course, since we know how fast light travels, we can determine the distance to the moon. Now, since we've been doing this for 50 years, what we're finding out is indeed the moon is moving away from the Earth and it's moving away at about an inch and a half a year. Pretty neat. <laughs> That's so wild. I mean, if you think about millions of years ago, the moon must have been closer in the sky, right? Uh, yeah, actually, uh, the giant impact hypothesis tells us pretty much where the moon really came together was about three Earth radii away. When we compare the size of the moon, we would see it would be 16 times bigger than the size of the moon we see today. So it would really dominate the sky. It would be just absolutely enormous. Wow, that sounds like a sci-fi movie in the making right there. Well, speaking of going inside the moon, at Splitted Spark asks, are there caves or cave systems on the moon? And if we decide to build underground bases on the moon, where would the entrance be? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, it's a matter of just the last six, seven or eight years that we've really been studying the moon and, 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 the, and its surface to the point where we have found entrances to caves. Now, these are, these are special caves. What they really are, if you can imagine early on when the moon uh, had uh, magma coming up, molten rock that was then going to pour out onto the surface of the moon, and it was carving these tunnels. 
and then dumping onto the surface of the moon, just like they do here on Earth. And then they cool, they create caverns, you know, large lava tubes that then uh, become uh, 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 hollow. And um, uh, certain times uh, the roofs collapse and we can look into these lava tubes. Now we started seeing these features from orbit from a number of satellites and we called them skylights because we, we knew they weren't craters. But the more we looked at it, the more we realized when we combined that with the knowledge of the gravity in and around these areas that we got from the GRAIL mission, that these are indeed lava tubes. Now, what's spectacular about these is if we could enter them, if, it, you know, if the roof collapses and creates a ramp that we can, and there are one or two that are like that, that we can drive into, uh, into these large cavernous areas. We then uh, can set up uh, an inflatable uh, habitat. It would be uh, protected from a lot of the intense radiation uh, that, that our atmosphere and our magnetosphere protect us here on Earth. But on the moon, which has neither, uh, then would, uh, would need protection. And so that's a great place to go for that. But what's really neat is we believe that the temperature inside these lava tubes remains constant both day and night. Now on the surface, uh, the temperature change on the moon between its day and its night is enormous. It's hundreds of degrees in variation. And so if we have a habitat that's out on the surface, we'd have to bring enough power to accommodate these large variations. But inside a lava tube where we know what the temperature is, it's much easier to start at a base temperature and then be able to come up with a livable temperature for our habitats. So um, uh, these skylights uh, showing us the way to uh, lava tubes and the lava tubes are giving us some ideas as to potentially where we might future develop uh, some livable capabilities. That's really neat. We have another question. Speaking of being on the surface of the moon, would you be able to see the lights from cities on Earth if you were standing on the moon? This is a question from at IBE underscore IE. Uh, absolutely, if you're on the near side of the moon. You know, as I mentioned, one of the things that we love to do is also uh, go to the far side of the moon, not only with our robotic missions, but eventually with humans too. And, 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 and since the moon is tightly locked, on the far side of the moon, we'd never have an opportunity to see the Earth. But uh, on the near side, we would all the time. Yeah. Now, in fact, if we ended up in these uh, skylights, you could uh, stand at the bottom of a lava tube where the roof has collapsed and look up and constantly see the Earth. And that's really neat too. You, you would set up a communications st uh, station there. You know, it's like being uh, in the cupola of space station where you always look down and see the beautiful earth up close. But if you walked into the uh, skylight and looked up, you'd always see the earth. Now it'd be much further away, but it still would be a beautiful sight, I'm sure. Incredible. Uh, here's a question from at I Am Production UK. And this sounds like a sci-fi movie in the making as well. Hypothetically, what would happen to the Earth if the moon got destroyed? Okay, well, it would take a lot to destroy the moon. You know, another huge impact. 
Um, uh, and, and that, of course, is unlikely. Um, uh, you know, we have a variety of hazards we call near-Earth objects. These are asteroids that have been thrown out of the asteroid belt by Jupiter. They're gravitational interaction with Jupiter, and they come inward. They also go outward. Jupiter throws them out of the solar system. But those that come inward uh, that then orbit the sun and then eventually cross the orbit of Earth uh, have the opportunity of hitting the Earth, but also the moon. And in fact, um, uh, for every one impact on the moon, we expect that there's 20 impacts on Earth because of just the size difference. Uh, but none of these objects are of any size that would, uh, that would bust, up, uh, bust up the moon. So indeed, that would be a pretty extraordinary science fiction. Indeed. But let's say hypothetically that the moon suddenly disappeared. What would happen to Earth? Like, would our oceans be the same? What would happen? Okay, that's a good question. So um, let's just uh, wave a wand, okay, and eliminate the moon. What happens to the Earth? Actually, several things. One, even though we know uh, tides uh, in the ocean are connected with the gravitational pull of the moon as it moves around the earth, once the moon is gone, the tides are radically reduced. Now it turns out they don't go away because 30% of the tides, the size of these tides, are actually contributed by the sun's gravitational interaction with the earth, okay? So there will still be some tides, but perhaps the biggest problem we'll have is because the earth is not uniform in mass, just like the moon is not uniform in mass, the pull from the sun on these, on these mass concentrations on earth will yank our pull around. So like a top that's, you know, as you spin a top and it starts to run out of energy and all of a sudden that spinning axis moves around, uh, that's what will happen to Earth. So our axis will now change from 23 and a half degrees to some other number. Uh, as, and we call that change, that change in that axis obliquity, and it could be quite severe. So, you know, over the next tens of thousands of years, you know, uh, maybe the equator will, will uh, be where our current uh, uh, pole is. You know, it could literally, literally have huge climatic effects on Earth. So it would, it would not be a fun Earth to live on if we lost our moon. That's so wild. Thanks for explaining that. We have some more questions about exploration um, at Alex PRI 1957005 says, when humans do colonize the moon, what sort of practical issues would arise from the lower gravity? Okay, so the practical issues, some will be solved easily, you know, we'll be able to move more freely on the moon. So that means, you know, uh, building habitats or structures will be a tad easier. Uh, on the moon than on the earth. The bigger problems uh, might be how the body adjusts to that low gravity. Now we know the body goes through an enormous number of changes in, in, on space station where uh, there's virtually no gravity. Uh, and so um, on the moon, even though we'll have some, uh, there will be some effects. Um, 
There may not be anywhere near as severe as, as what we experience on space station with bone loss and with pressure on the eyes because the gravity still will pull our liquids in our bodies down towards our feet as, as we do here on Earth. And we're used to that. And so the pressure variation in our bodies uh, is gauged by that gravity. On the moon, we'd still have that. Uh, so that would, uh, that would be very helpful. But I'm sure there'll be some things that we'll uncover that we never, never thought of. And I can't think of them. <laughs> we'll just have to experience them. Cool. So, I mean, does that mean, let's say that there was a whole bunch of astronauts? I mean, would they have to avoid knocking each other around? Well, you know, when our uh, Apollo astronauts were on the moon, they found that skipping was a lot easier than walking, you know, so they could skip. And, and therefore literally lift off the moon and move, you know, several feet uh, quite easily. And so it, it just was uh, more of an effortless movement for them to do that. So that's kind of fun. I'm sure, I'm sure everyone will figure out a way that they will enjoy walking on the moon and it will be different than the walking that we get here on Earth. Wow, that sounds super fun. Uh, well, I think those are all the questions that we got. Actually, let's do one more. Um, so let's do one more question uh, from at Sobek42. Does the moon have an atmosphere? And if so, what does it consist of? Thanks. Okay. So when we look at the moon, we basically say it has no atmosphere, but it, technically that's not quite correct. All right. The moon outgasses it vents some interior gases as it's continually cooling from the time it was made. In fact, all planets are cooling from the time they are made. It's just like you heat, you, you, you have an oven, you bake a cake, you take it out, and, and the cake is still cooking because it's hot and it's cooling. Well, the moon is cooling too, and, uh, and so consequently it will outgas, but that outgas uh, creates a very thin atmosphere. It's almost uh, like it's not even there. Now, we had a mission a few years ago called LADEE, which is uh, the Lunar Atmosphere and Dust Explorer. And that, that spacecraft had very sensitive instruments on it that was designed to measure that outgassing, measure that what we call tenuous atmosphere. And uh, it found out all kinds of really neat things. Uh, one of the things that it found out is that during certain times, the moon's tenuous atmosphere would be dominated by water. And that was really startling. That was a brand new discovery. And, and how that comes about is during those times, they are also the time that the Earth and the Moon are moving through an area in space where there's a lot of uh, small dust left over from a comet dissipating, and it creates this trail of small debris and material that, that orbit the Sun, and we pass through those orbits every once in a while and create meteor showers. And so what's happening then is these micrometeors that hit the Earth, we see them and we, oh, falling stars, just beautiful. But they hit the moon too. And when they hit the moon, if they can really penetrate uh, into the upper crust and shock waves go down, we estimate about 10 feet, that liberates the water that's, that's below that surface. 
and creates that little tenuous atmosphere that has a lot of water in it. And so we see these puffs of atmosphere really intensifying uh, many times a year. You know, we, we get, you know, six or seven a year. So the moon's got such a small atmosphere, we tend to neglect it or not talk about it. But it turns out it's really important to understand it because that water, once it's generated, will come back down to the moon and, and go into these permanently shadowed areas and contribute to the water that we're going to get access to when we when we go to that South Pole, because we're going to need that water. Awesome. Can't wait. Well, I think that's all the time we have this week. I want to thank everyone who submitted questions on social media. You all had really good ideas and really good questions about lunar exploration and lunar science. Uh, thank you, Jim, for answering these questions. Well, my pleasure. We've got more exciting discussions coming up about the moon. And so I'm hoping that you'll enjoy uh, this segment and others. Awesome. And before we sign off, I want to plug a, another NASA podcast called NASA Explorers Apollo, a podcast from the Goddard Space Flight Center. They are actually asking listeners for memories of the Apollo 11 mission. If you would like to send your story, record an audio clip and send it to apollostories at mail.nasa.gov. And we'll end with a clip from John Oliver Smith from Ohio. I recall it was hot and humid, a typical July day in Western Ohio. It was one of those summers I spent swimming at the pond, doing chores with dad, playing out in the fields and making my own discoveries. My older brother Jim was out traveling the world somewhere. My teenage sisters were busy with their friends and one of our local natives was in a small spaceship headed for the moon. Eagle, you're looking great, coming up nine minutes. I had a reel-to-reel -reel tape recorder, a household item before VCRs, DVDs, and iPhones. I carried it everywhere. This was obviously a day to be recorded. July 20th, 1969, it is 10 p.m. The following are the voices of Neil A. Armstrong, Air Force Colonel Edwin Aldrin, Jr. They are the first men to ever walk on the moon. Neil Armstrong was a local boy. He grew up no more than 20 miles away and his parents still lived nearby. Grandma and Grandpa were coming over. Mom had cooked something special, and we were getting ready to watch Neil Armstrong do what no man had ever done before. Grandpa was sipping his drink, wine or scotch, I don't remember which, but he was already on his second when Mom said, he better land on the moon or Grandpa will get there first. Hurry up or Grandpa will land first. <laughs> we copy you down, Eagle. Listen, uh, Tranquility Base here, the Eagle has landed. Roger, Tranquility, we copy you on the ground. You got a bunch of guys about to turn blue. We're breathing again. Thanks a lot. My father, the engineer, was explaining the events on TV moment by moment. We all hailed our breath at 9.56 p.m. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. When we mark the anniversary this summer, I will fall back 50 years to the day I first heard that phrase, a giant leap for mankind. But I won't be thinking only of Neil Armstrong. I'll see perfectly my mom, dad, grandma, and grandpa all sitting in the living room around the television in our little house in Western Ohio. I'll also be sitting with my beautiful wife, children, and grandchildren thinking of the future, imagining discoveries yet to come, and wondering what they will remember. <laughs>